Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. I said that we would we were done with the, the body of the Amidah and that we would now go on to Elohainetzur, but I lied. So we're going to, there's a couple of things that I realized are worth reviewing having to do with Modim, and I sort of skipped over some things. So we're going to backtrack to some maybe miscellaneous-ish kind of points about the latter part of the Amidah. We're not going to get to Elohainetzur yet, God willing, next week. Okay, so... Uh Uh, if you want Modim in front of you, that is on page 216 in the Sim Shalom. Uh, I'm sorry. That's the evening service. Wait, wait, wait. That's the evening service. Modim is there. But uh, yeah, uh, page 41 in the Slim Shalom. And in the Sim Shalom, I don't want the evening service because I want the, it's on page 116. Thank you, 116. Because I also want the individual modim, which we don't have in the evening service, because in the evening service, it's <clears> a repetition <throat> of the Amidah. 116 in the Sim, 41 in the Slim. Okay. First, Michael Ozier, who shared something with me after our last class, which I said, oh, everyone should hear that. Oh, well, okay. Thanks, Rabbi. Um, uh, this was, uh, this is in San Antonio. Uh, uh, on on Shabbat, uh, we had a practice at at the, at the conservative synagogue there, Gudasachim, congregation of Gudasachim, where on Shabbat morning they would do uh, for the Musaf they would do an abbreviated Musaf service. But uh, and during sorry, the, and when you say abbreviated, just tell us what you mean by that. Well, I mean they they did not do the full repetition with okay. the. They they uh, they went. We went together through, through kedusha, the, through the kedusha, and, and then silent, silent, and then uh, when the, at the end of that period, uh, the rabbi would say, "If you're not finished, continue. But uh, if you're finished, everybody, uh, please uh, join hands in your row. You know, if you'd like." And uh, everybody put their arms around each other, and uh, they would do the priestly blessing. Uh, and then everybody would say, Kane, you hear song, you know. And I thought that was interesting because you had, you had spent time on that mm-hmm. last week talking about um, how, what a loss it is and, uh, uh, in uh uh, when when the shorter version is done, because you you, you don't have the priestly blessing, so yeah. nice. I thought that was a nice custom, so I wanted Michael to share it with everyone. Yeah, I of had course, this, this yeah. was all this was all pre-COVID. Yes, right. and after COVID came, we didn't uh, we didn't do that anymore. Six feet on all directions of space, right? right. You'd, no, you'd have no to touching. have awfully, you'd have no to have awfully long arms. Yeah, um, Michael, and I'm just curious, just as a as an aesthetic liturgical thing, did the rabbi or cantor just like say Yivarechecha or was there some musical? No, you, 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 it was a, you sang it basically. Got it. People, yeah. people yeah. participated. I got it. And I'm sure there are musical versions. I'm sure I, I haven't looked to see if the late Debbie Friedman wrote a melody for Yivarechecha, but I'm sure she did. Um, 
because she wrote a melodies for so many other public liturgical things. And I suspect in, in reform synagogues, uh, such a tune might be used more often than in conservative synagogues. That's very nice. Right. Good. So a way to kind of not lose the uh, Birkat Kohanim. And of course, in that shul, I'm guessing they had a repetition of the Amidah in Shachrit, where they said the priestly blessing, except the problem with that, of course, is that at least half the congregation is not present yet in shul at that moment, right? Um, so there are shuls where they say, well, we did that already, but we did that. If you want that, you come for, you know, come before, you know, come at 945, right? So, um, and there are a lot of people who, you know, uh, I among them who would say like, oh, that's, that's tough. I might not be there in time. Okay. Um, anyone want to say anything else about Birkat Kohanim that they want to share? Because then I'm going to go back to Modim. We're going in backwards direction. Birkat uh-huh. Kohanim as part of, uh, remember, Birkat Kohanim is part of the bracha sim shalom. It is a part of the 19th bracha. So now let's backtrack to Modim. So Michael corrected me on a halachic point that I appreciated last week that I went and I researched. And I realized that at age 63, I've been doing Modim wrong for, I don't know, over 55 years. Maybe they taught me this in Orthodox day school and I just don't remember it. But I, uh, so old habits are hard to break, Michael. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. So in fact, <laughs> I always thought that for Modim, you go Modim Anachnu Lach, the same you, way you go Baruch Atahashem, meaning bend the knees at the first word, bow at the second word, and then be erect when you are addressing God. But in fact, that's wrong. Halachically, uh, you're supposed to just bend from the waist when you say modim. Hmm. And modim anachnu lach sha'atah hu. And you're supposed to be bowed for the first five words. This is the, it's all minhag, all right? But the minhag is uh, you bow from the waist, meaning you don't bend the knees. It's just, uh, again, the people who are listening can't see this, but it's just uh, you bow from the waist, modim anach nulach shatahu, and then you stand up erect for Hashem, for God's name. So in fact, that appears to be the halachically uh, valid custom for how to do it. And, uh, you know, good luck to me to try to change old habits. Uh, again, when I was discussing this last week, I think I said this, um, I suspect you'd have to say, like, why is the minhag different? The thing that's different of modium, of course, as opposed to the three other bowings, is the three other bowings are on Baruch Atah Hashem, meaning it's a different formula. Baruch is interpreted to mean a whole bunch of things, blessed, infused with blessing, overflowing with blessing. But one of the interpretations of Baruch is that it's related to the word Berech, the verb uh, the noun and the verb, which means to kneel or to bend the knee, right? So one possible interpretation of Baruch, it's probably not the pshat, right? It's probably not the original simplest meaning of why the rabbi said the blessing formula has to have Baruch Hashem. It's probably kind of a midrashic secondary meaning, but one understanding of it, the secondary meaning is that Baruch is sort of mean we kneel before you, Right. So we, or we bend the knee. So it would make sense 
to bend the knee at Baruch, but not necessarily at Modim, meaning there's no, if you want to connect it to the word Baruch, there's no reason you should bend the knee for Modim. If you're just saying, thank you, you can just, uh, you know, bow your head. Okay. So thank you, Michael, for correcting me on that. Any question or comment about that point? By the way, I want to say one more thing that I forgot last time. The, the halacha does say, which we'll look at that halacha in a moment, that we bow at modim beginning and end. And so I don't think we said this explicitly, but I'm now saying the bracha at the end, baruch Hashem, is when you bow. So just as at avot, the first bracha, you bend the knee, bow, and then stand up straight for baruch atah Hashem, elokeinu, elokeinu. And then at the end of that bracha, Baruch Hashem, Magen Abraham, right? So uh, Halacha says you bow in the Amidah four times. And it says that because the statutory or required Amidah is just the 19 blessings or seven blessings on Shabbat, not Elohai Netzor. Elohai Netzor is seen as an additional extra thing that's not part of the core Amidah. So those bowings that you do at the end aren't counted in the halacha. We'll get to them. But the core halacha says we bow four times in the Amidah and the first blessing, avot, beginning and end, and in modim, beginning and end. And if you said, well, why modim and not the other ones? It's just kind of intuitive because that's the one where we say, thank you, God, right? So it seems it seems appropriate we bow at the first bracha because we're entering God's presence, we're starting, and then we bow at Modim, because that's the one where we say, thank you, God. So we bow beginning and end. So beginning, in fact, you bend at the waist for Modim, and then stand up erect for Hashem, right? God's name. Whereas at the end, bracha, you, the bracha at the end, you do it, the closing of Modim, you do it the same way you do it in Avot, Baruch, Ata, right, bend the knee at Baruch, bow at Ata, then stand erect for Hashem, Hatov, Shimcha, Ulchana, Elahodot. Your name is good and it is good to thank you. Okay? So that's the four bowings of the Amidah. Now I will pause for question and comment. Michael, then Terry. No, it was really Terry, then Michael. Sorry. Terry had her hand up first. We're, we're going to look at the Halakha. That's, I just wanted to we'll see. Look at, we'll look a little bit at the Halakha. Yes. Thank you. That's okay. all. Michael. Thank you. Yes, if I may, can I take the, the drash of Baruch and Barak one step farther? Sure. I've always thought that the word sounded like break. Baruch, Barak, break. Uh-huh. And, and there's the English phrase that we use to, to wish someone well on stage by saying break a leg. Uh-huh. And what that means, from my understanding is that that means that your performance should be so good that the king or queen in the royal box at the theater stands and acknowledges you and and you are then to bow to the oh, to the sun. I'm not a theater guy, so I never knew so, that. Okay. So so that break be, means to bend the knee, just, okay. just like barek and okay. Oh. Okay. Yeah. A, a midrash connecting the the uh, it's either a midrash connecting the English to the Hebrew, or we could just say it's a mnemonic to help Michael remember it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, and what this means is. Um, and by the way, the halacha is explicit that you're not supposed to bow at the other baruchatas in the Amidah. 
And many of us will see for people who are, let us say, less familiar with the choreography of how to be in synagogue, that in shuls, not of how to be in synagogue, uh, the choreography of kind of what to do with your body during the prayers, that in, in, in shuls you'll sometimes see when we do a hecha kedusha, when the, when the congregation says the first part of the Amidah up to Kedusha aloud with the Chazan, you'll see some people bow at Baruch HaTashem Mechayei HaMetim, right? The Baruch at the end of the second blessing. And this is simply wrong. Okay. Of course, it's hard to know, you know, if you see someone doing something wrong in their, what, what, as far as you know, it's wrong uh, in terms of your knowledge base. In shul, you know, what are you supposed to do? Do you tell someone? How do you tell someone? That's a very complicated question, which I'm not going to go into. Um, okay. So I want to look at a couple of halachic sources about modim. That's what I'm going to do next, unless someone has another question or comment. All right. I'm going to look at two things. So this is from Safaria but I want to show everyone how to find this. Again, I've done this once before. So Safari is a great resource, which aims to have like all Jewish textual wisdom ever printed available on the internet. It is a free resource, quote unquote free, quote unquote means you have access to it for free, but it costs a lot of money to set it up. And so as, uh, as um, Michael, uh, when I wasn't my, as Larry reminded me to say last time, but it costs money, so make a contribution to them. All right, so I haven't done it from scratch, but you go to safaria.org, S-E-F-A-I-S-E-F-A-R-I-A, safaria.org. It'll always have an Aleph and an A in big letters in the top right, so you can click on what language do you want. Some things are only in Hebrew and haven't been translated into English. It has Tanakh and the Talmuds and all the halachic commentaries and Hasidic literature and a zillion things. So if you went to, you could click on halacha and then it lists a bunch of books and then you could click on Shulchan Aruch, right? And if you knew, because you were studying in some source that said, this is in Shulchan Aruch, Orachayim, uh, uh, Shulchan Aruch has four divisions. The first division is called Orachayim, Way of Life, chapter 121, then you would go to Orachayim chapter 121 and you would find this. Okay. Siman is the way they say chapter in halachic literature. Okay. The laws of Modium, which has three paragraphs. Paragraph one, it doesn't, unfortunately, it doesn't list the three paragraphs as one, two, and three. If you looked at an actual Shulchan Aruch book, it would have Aleph, Bet, and Gimel. So, so uh, paragraph one. You bow at modim at the beginning and the end. And notice the Shulchan Aruch does not say how to bow. Those are later other commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch that give the specifics. I'm not going to bring that text today. Okay? So you bow at modim beginning and end. This is a a section of Shulchan Aruch, by the way, that goes through the Amida paragraph by paragraph, and it says, are there anything about this Amida, like, you know, Anything about this particular blessing you're supposed to do or you're supposed to know. Okay. Line, uh, paragraph two. Ha'omer modim modim mishatkin oto. This goes back to the Talmud, this saying. 
a person who says aloud, which generally means the chazan, because that's the only person you would hear aloud, modim, twice, we silence them. Anyone know why that is? In Talmudic times. So in Talmudic times, we know about, you know, rabbinic battles against sectarians. And for sectarians, we usually think of um, uh, either pagans or Christian Jews, Jewish Christians. But there were also sectarians in late antiquity and rabbinic times, Mishnah and Talmud times, who were what's called binatarians. They believed that there were two deities, right? We're less familiar with this quote-unquote heresy, but in Gnosticism, there were widespread beliefs in late antiquity that there were two deities. It was sort of like a big, absent, set up the universe, disappeared and doesn't care deity, and then a lesser deity who was appointed to run the world, who is uh, less good and actually evil comes from that second deity, okay? It wasn't um, Zoroastrian binatarianism, that there's force of good and force of evil, okay? There, that, there was that in Zoroastrian, which was in Persia, but even in Eretz Yisrael, there was Gnosticism, spelled with a G, Gnosticism, and some of the Gnostics were binatarians, okay? They believed in an upper deity and a lower deity. Um, and so there were some Jewish uh, who, people who the rabbis defined as heretics with non-normative beliefs, okay? And one of the non-normative practices based on a non-normative belief was that you might say something to both deities. So you'd be saying, modim, modim. By the way, some scholars say this rabbinic polemic also stands behind the um, first two lines of the Aleinu. Aleinu l'shabeach la'adon hakol la'tek g'dolali otzer breshit. Right, is incumbent upon us to worship the Adon hakol, the master of all, to give greatness to the fashioner of creation. Right, so some scholars say that Adon Hakol and Yotzer Breshit were titles for these two deities, and the Aleinu is saying these they're not two; they're actually the same deity. Okay, that the God who's involved in creating us, you know, the pup, puppet. There's like a puppet master God, quote unquote, and that's different than the far off original God. So it's, it strikes us as a odd idea, um, but this was a thing back then. They called it binatarian, or sorry, they didn't call it binatarianism. Scholars today, academic scholars call it binatarianism. I think that's what it's called. I think that's how it's pronounced, which is the belief that there were two deities. So if the Chazan seems to be saying in Modim something that implies that the Chazan is a heretic, we shush them, which uh, uh, really means we remove them as chazan. That's what that means, practically speaking, right? Sorry, you can't do that, right? You can't be chazan anymore. You're a, you're a heretic, right? And we know that in late antiquity, in the rabbinic era, I'm going to say in the 100s, 200s, 300s, there was a lot of shuffling around of belief 
um, in the Jewish world and in its surrounding late Hellenistic world. Uh, this shuffling of belief is what made, you know, much of the Mediterranean world um, ripe for Christianity. Okay, and there were various schools of thought, and the sages who ended up defining our Judaism, which is what we call Rabbinic Judaism or Talmudic Judaism or Classical Judaism. I'll use all of those terms as rough synonyms. They decided that all these other beliefs were heretical. Okay, this is part of their carving out their path forward of Judaism, right? So binatarianism was heretical. Chazan who said, modim, modim, we shush them. Any comment or question about that? Okay. Then I came across this and I didn't know this. Yachid ein lo lomar birkat koanim. When you're praying individually, when you're, which means either when you're saying your private Amidah or if you're praying alone without a minion, in which case you're praying your private Amidah, you do not say birkat koanim, Elohim oleyavoteinu. That part I knew, but this part in the smaller print I didn't know. Um, for those who might remember this, we've said it before, the Shulchan Aruch, in brief, was composed, was written by a Sephardi uh, author, Rav Yosef Karo, in the either the 1500s or the 1600s. I always mix those two centuries up. Uh, I shouldn't, but I do. Um, and then when it reached Ashkenazic lands, Rav Moshe Iserlis, who was a Polish rabbi, wrote comments on it where Ashkenazi practice differed from Sephardi practice. And in um, a printed Shulchan Aruch, those are written in different fonts. And in Sepharia, the big font is the Shulchan Aruch by um, Rav Yosef Karo, the original book. And the smaller font is the comments or glosses by the Ramah, Rav Moshe Israelis, the Ashkenazi practice. Okay. Haga in Hebrew means comment. Kar. This is correct. This is the primary opinion. He's saying the, 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 what the Shulchan Aruch said is correct halacha. And it seems to me that this is the correct practice also. But the widespread custom is not this. Rock Afilu Yachid Omeroto, Kolzman Shiraui Linisiat Kapayim. Okay? And it, right, the widespread custom is that individuals say Birkat Kawanim, the Eno Nireh, but that does not appear to be correct. So the Ramah is making a very interesting comment. He says, the Shulchan Aruch says, when you're praying individually, you do not say Birkat Kodim, which is kind of what we're familiar with, right? That's, that's our practice. And I think that that is correct. And this is my custom or practice. However, there is a widespread practice, uh, apparently, he is saying, that individuals do say Birkat Kohanim, And this seems to me wrong. So again, in terms of development of practice, um, it's, it's interesting that he's giving this candid opinion, which is that, you know, I'm a rabbi. I see all these people doing this thing. It's a widespread practice. I think they're technically actually wrong for doing that. And there's a source for that. And it's not my minhag, but apparently the people have a widespread minhag. Um, right. I, I want to say, um, 
in Hebrew, where my cursor is, Hamin Hag HaPashut. Pashut in modern um, Israeli Hebrew means simple practice, but that's not what it means in, in, um, uh, in rabbinic Hebrew. It means widespread, because Lifshot means to spread. Okay? So I see everyone around me doing this other minhag, which is wrong, right? We, we kind of imagine, I imagine the Ramah sort of, you know, putting up his hands and shrugging his shoulders. It's like kind of, what can I do? You know, they're all doing it wrong, but yeah, it's sort of like everyone bowing at Baruch HaTashem Mechayei HaMetim, right? If you're in a shul where a lot, it's like, it's the wrong practice. I, I have sources for it that it's wrong. It's apparently widespread. What can I do? All right, so that's kind of what I imagine the Ramah shrugging. Okay, any comment about that? Then we're going to go on to Modim Durabanan, uh, another halachic source about that, the individual modim that you say while the chazan says the modim. Jeff, I can't see everyone's hand, by the way, in, in screen share mode. Um, so, so you have to jump in. Go ahead, Jeff. Um, the three paragraphs. Yes. That is referred to at the beginning. That's yes. The, the modim that we see. Yes. The birkat kohanim. No, the three paragraphs is you bow at modim. For beginning and end, line one. Number two, the person who says modim twice, we shut them up. And then number three, the individual does not say Birkat Kohanim. Those are the three paragraphs in chapter 121. Oh, so that, oh, they're refer, self-referring, I see. Yeah, yeah okay. it's not three paragraphs of modim. It says okay. in chapter 121, there are three paragraphs. By the way, what that probably means is, I'm guessing, in the original manuscript of of uh, of um give me of the shulchan aruch i'm guessing it might not have said aleph bet and gimel maybe there is an indentation or something else to indicate that there are three paragraphs that's just referring to in chapter 121 there are going to be three paragraphs i'm just telling you in a printed shulchan aruch it says aleph bet and gimel and for whatever reason probably having to do with technical setting up things online um, Safari, it doesn't do that. Yes. Avi, uh, okay. Yeah, Terry. Uh, uh, so, in all of your um, your your years in shul, in in various shuls, have you ever witnessed um, a uh, a leader saying modim modim? No, because binitarianism is not a hot issue <laughs> okay. nowadays. Apparently, it was in the year. I think this is from the Mishnah, by the way. So apparently it was in the year 200. I, I, I get it. The other part of my question is this. By the way, I just want to say, and it's in the Mishnah, okay? So that means it's important. That's why it's in the Shulchan Aruch, okay? Trust me, in the year 1500 or 1600, there weren't binitarian heretics either. That issue was over by the end oh. of late antiquity. There are no more Gnostics, but okay. it it goes back to something you 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 casually mentioned earlier, which is when you see someone doing something through the amida that isn't cor- isn't correct, isn't how, correct, how, isn't correct according to what I know because what I know is limited because I might think, hey, Michael Harris, you're not bending the knees when you say modim, and you're wrong for not bending the knees. And I might be wrong because I don't know everything. 
Okay. But go on with your question. No, no. I just, I was curious if one would come across somebody who was doing something like that, like that is discussed here, how would you silence that person? Well, silence is different from, I think my fellow member in the pew is a little confused and I want to help them learn. Right. That is different. By the way, the reason it's silenced is because it's, it's really about in the mission. It's really about the Chazan. Okay. It's really about someone who is using a public moment to promulgate their heresy political. Right. So it's a different thing, right? It's like, Oh, this is dangerous. Right. So again, these people, binatarians, Christian Jews, they lived within the Jewish community. The rabbis were staking out their authority. And so they said, if we hear certain things in the congregation, we must silence that. And what they really meant is the chazan. Okay. There, there are other things in the Mishnah, certain other in that same Mishnah passage in Brachot about certain other things the Chazan says, we, we, we kick them off the bima, so to speak. We silence them. Okay. Um, that's different than, I don't know. Uh, I'm saying the weekday Amida in shul silently, and I notice the person up the row for me is actually bowing 19 times. They go, they bow at the end of every Baruch Hashem. What would I do about that? That's a much harder uh, uh, question, right? I'm not their rabbi. If I was their rabbi, I might have a delicate way of saying, hey, I'd love to study with you sometimes. I know there, there are all kinds of different customs. I'd like to study with you, uh, you know, sometimes some of the, the, the uh, procedures for the choreography of, um, uh, of the Amida. But of course, it's America. Right. So that's the land where some people would say, well, okay, that's nice, but that's, this is my custom. Right. Right. Okay. Um, You know, I always say to people, and this was always traditional in Jewish communities, watch the authoritative person, watch the rabbi and see what they do. And then you can sometimes say, rabbi, I noticed when you walk backwards uh, at the end of Elohai Nitzor, you you know, click your heels together three times as if you're Dorothy. It's saying there's no place like home. Is that the Minhag? I've never seen that before. And then they might say, well, no, 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 that's just a practice, but that's not the authoritative thing. The normative thing is you don't actually click, but you walk backwards this way, right? So like, do you walk backwards with the left or the right first? What's the first thing you do to answer questions like that is you look at the Rebbe, and you watch what they do, right? Just like the story in the Talmud of the students who hid under the Rebbe's marital bed, right? To, to overhear the sex life. And when the Rebbe caught them, they said, uh, Torah, you know, but, but this is also Torah and I need to learn it, right? Meaning, you know, how uh, an intimate relationship should proceed in a state of holiness. This is also part of Torah. Uh, and I need to know that also, right? So you always, step one is look at what the rabbi does. I say the rabbi as the person who is deemed to be the authoritative figure in the congregation, right? Part of the It's America ethos is 
uh, everyone's an expert for themselves. And we've lost to some extent the ethos, sorry, in non, I am going to say in non-Orthodox circles, in non-Orthodox synagogues, we've tended to lose the ethos of you follow what the rabbi does. You watch what the rabbi does, right? Um, Step one in learning how to practice be Torah is watch what the rabbi does. That's kind of the, you know, the kind of primary part of the traditional rabbinic ethos throughout the ages. How do you say Kiddush? You say Kiddush the way your Rebbe does. How do you hold the cup? You watch how the rabbi holds the cup, right? And again, this is because most people either were, I don't want to say illiterate, but semi-literate and didn't have access to books and didn't have study time. So they didn't have time to read a book to tell them how to hold the Kiddush cup, right? They would watch the authoritative person, how they held the Kiddush cup. And that's how they learned to do it. When do you bow? You watch when the rabbi bows. So would you, would you say that from a, I guess, a sociological perspective, comments that one hears commonly in American um, congregations about, oh, well, I daven the way my father davened, or yeah. this is the way my family did it. Yeah. You wouldn't necessarily hear that in, a, in, in, other, in other communities no, or in a more no, traditional. You, no, you hear that also because, you know, there's an awareness that people uh, come from, you know, again, the shul, even if you go to an Orthodox shul, is no longer the shul in some village in Poland where your forebears grew up and your descendants, your forebears grew up and died, you will grow up and die, and your descendants will grow up and die, right? So there are people coming to American synagogues from different traditions, okay? Um, And so there is respect for, um, uh, I'm going to call it parental minhag, Right. So there are certain things which are minhag, just custom, not halacha. There's a difference right. between minhag and halacha. Mm-hmm. So uh, in if you're if you take this seriously, which not everyone does, if you said, well, my mother bowed 19 times in the weekday Amida, then your rabbi would say, well, I'm sure she was very devout, but that's actually not the correct minhag. OK. Um, uh, once I, I, I didn't want to get my tefillin checked because I knew that they would be declared pasul and then I'd have to get a new pair of tefillin. And I was talking to the sofa who said, you really should have them checked. Um, and I said, well, they're my grandfather's tefillin. So they have sentimentality. And he said to me, you know what? I bet your grandfather would want you to be wearing kosher tefillin. <laughs> right. So you're not honoring the memory of your grandfather by not having those old fill in checked. You think you're honoring the memory of your grandfather. <laughs> right. That's I was corrected by the Sophia, the scribe, who is also a rabbi. Right. The point was well taken. Um, we're we're going to wrap up in a moment. So um, so this is a complicated question. Right. Um, uh, and even when I say in 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 synagogues, you know, Orthodox synagogues nowadays, they will still tend to be defined. It'll be a yeshivish synagogue or a Hasidish synagogue. Um, but there's still awareness that there's mixture of minhagim. So when you're in an Ashkenazi synagogue, 
and there's a Sephardi person there saying Kaddish, and they add Vyatzmach Purkanevi Karev Meshiche, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a thing that Sephardim say in Kaddish. No one says to them, don't say that. We're an Ashkenazi synagogue. You can't say that here, right? So there is recognition that people come from different kind of minhagim, but those minhagim, what defines a minhag isn't just my mother did that. That's a family practice. Minhag is actually a technical halachic term. It means a ritual practice that has some basis in halacha as being defined as a minhag. Okay, so just because you do something and that's your practice, that doesn't make it a minhag. Minhag is a halachic term. In in contemporary modern Israeli Hebrew, you would say that's my minhag, which means that's my practice, right? But in halacha, there's halacha, means this is the rule, and there's minhag, which is custom, which is less binding than the rule, but it's still a technical term. It doesn't mean anything that anyone does is a minhag. So, hey, that's my minhag. That's my practice. Isn't the same thing as I come from a lineage that has a specific minhag that is rooted somewhere, which very often has to do with, can you find it somewhere in some halachic source? Okay, we're we're running over and far afield, and I wanted to do uh, the Talmud passage on um, the individual modim. We'll try to do that next week, and we'll go on to Elohim Netzor. And thanks for coming, and be Torah, and everyone have a good, healthy day. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.